Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Steve Simpson. He's the founder of Keystone. Steve, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. Great to be with you. Today, we're going to be discussing a number of really important topics around culture, around leadership. We're going to look at the importance of culture and how it contributes to the success or otherwise of teams and organizations. We're going to look at the impact of the ignorance of the impact and importance of culture. Uh, We're going to look at the individual lack of self-awareness of leaders and managers might have on a business. One of my favorite lessons I learned is that as a leader, the first line of your job description is, I am responsible for my face. Because if you turn up with your face like a sack of spanners, it sends a message. (laughs) And so we're going to look at leadership. We're going to look at how leadership can drive and improve culture, get in the way, how it's contributing to it. And what I'd like to do to begin with, Steve, is just get a real sense of how you got to where you are today. So 90 seconds on your history, if you wouldn't mind. 90 seconds, that's a challenge, Marcus, but I'll go for it. Look, I originally was a teacher. I realised that wasn't going to be for me. Went and did a master's degree in Canada in my mid-20s. Came back and became a public service in the education department. And then I quit and I was focusing on customer service because I believe that I just believe that customer service is so eminently logical and I couldn't work out why more companies weren't trying to deliver it. So I did some customer service training and realized very soon after that I was having an impact in some organizations but not others. Why was that the case? Well it occurred to me it was the culture of these organizations that was impacting on the extent to which my customer service message was being was gaining any traction or not. And so that led me down a path to explore workplace cultures, and that led me to create my concept of UGRs, which I can talk to in a moment. But I just think culture underpins so much, customer service and other things, that it is vitally important and is relatively unexplored in most organisations, despite what they might tell us about that. Okay, well, let's kick off with the foundational concept of UGRs. What are unwritten ground rules? UGRs, unwritten ground rules, which I define as people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. A definition, Marcus, is vitally important because the key word there is perceptions, people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. So that can include things like at our meetings, it isn't worth complaining because when and nothing will get done. The only time anyone gets spoken to by the boss is when something is wrong and so on. These drive people's behaviour, yet remarkably, they are seldom, if ever, talked about openly. So a good test for UGRs is the new employee. If the new employee is lucky, they get an induction or orientation where they get told, this is the way we do things around here. And then they go and find out the truth. And they find out by deduction. They will look unconsciously mostly, but they'll look for certain cues and clues to deduce, to work out what the UGRs are in their new organisation. It's the UGRs that are your culture. Culture is merely people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. The vast majority of us conform. Now, that is a really interesting take on things, and I haven't come across that before. So what was your epiphany, or was it a slow boil 
and uh, it all eventually came together and you thought, oh, my God, I can't believe I've been this stupid for so long. Marcus, <laughs> I, I studied culture when I did my master's degree in Canada when I was 25 years old, and uh, that was fine. It was just a topic that I explored and read a little bit about. I came back and worked in the education department in uh, Western Australia for five years. And during that time, I mean, late 20s, you're bulletproof, right? And so during that time, I was invited to facilitate a number of half-day sessions for school management teams, principals and deputies, in a particular district uh, near Perth in Western Australia. And without even looking at this, I, was, I facilitated around five or six of these. And without looking at the topics or anything, I just said, yes, of course I can do this. And one of the topics I found out was on culture. So I went back to my books that I'd studied and I read this stuff again. And I just thought, look, I'm not going to present this back because it's so academic, it's theoretical, it's philosophical, it's just too esoteric. And, you know, I'm not going to present that back to people. So I don't know how the notion of UGRs came into my head, but I reflected on the unwritten grand rules that I'd encountered as a teacher. I only taught for three or four years, and I just reflected on them. And I introduced that concept then. So I would have been late 20s. And, you know, it was a pretty pretty um, unsophisticated presentation. You know, I hadn't learned much about presenting, but I presented my ideas and I, I got a physical response, Marcus. I mean, I could literally see some people leaning forwards thinking, and I could read their minds thinking, well, this is talking about something that's never talked about. But I also got a physical response in that some people, it was too confronting. And it was almost that they were sort of turning away from me almost physically. So I knew at that point that I was, or I believed at that point that I was really onto something because here I was talking about stuff that I'd never read about and I'd also never heard talked about before. And to be honest with you, and this is very immodest, but at the time I, I thought to myself, I'm onto something here, you know, and um, <laughs> I've I, I actually kept on it for more than 30 years now. I've discovered that I'm about the 18th monkey to have written the complete works of Shakespeare for almost every original thought I've ever had. It's really depressing. The Medici's, <laughs> days, they beat me to it in the 15th century. I mean, who would have thought? So, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So it, what, what's culture? Let's start with this, because I think one of the problems is that if we're not clear about a shared definition and understanding, then that is the mother of all food bars, the ambiguity and the miscommunication. So let's start with culture, first of all. Let's start define culture. Culture is people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. It's the UTRs. That's what culture is. Okay. It's as simple as that. Now, look, there's plenty of books which make it much more complicated than this. In fact, the grandfather of the term corporate culture, Edgar Schein, for fun sometimes I will put on, on three PowerPoint slides his definition of culture because it literally takes three PowerPoint slides of text to you know, outline his definition. And look, there's a very strong possibility, Marcus, that I'm significantly, have a significantly simplified mind and don't understand the intricacies and the finer details of culture. But I think our task is to make it simple for people. And this resonates with people. It's simply people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. I honestly think it's as okay. simple as that. Okay, let's assume you're correct. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with you in any way, shape or form. What is the function of leadership? 
Well, this is a really good question, Marcus, because there are some very successful leaders who argue that their sole responsibility is to lead the culture of the organisation. Down here in Australia, Kmart, not associated with the US Kmart, a separate entity, but nonetheless a a, um, significant player in discount department store, used to run at a loss. In fact, it ran for a loss for 10 consecutive years. A conglomerate down here called West Farmers purchased Kmart, put in place a new leader, the best leader I've ever met. His name is Guy Russo. Loved UGRs and used that as the vehicle to transform what was a toxic culture. Now, there are other things that he put in place, of course, as well, to literally turn the Titanic of of Kmart. And they are now Australia's leading retailer, making half a billion dollars in profit by Australian standards. That's big. Guy Russo, I was in the audience. He didn't even know I was in the audience. I was in the audience of around 300 retailers when Guy Russo stood in front of this audience after they turned the ship around. He said, there are two things that leaders need to worry about, your business model and your culture. That's it. Get the business model right, get the culture right. That's it. So I think it's that important because after all, this is driving people's behavior. So Anyone who's listening to this, who's been part of a positive team, knows how good it is and knows that that alone will often drive you to go beyond and give of discretionary effort. I mean, there's there's this incredible key that leaders have to turn on that switch of people wanting to give more, wanting to grow, wanting to learn, wanting to perform. Culture does that, and I think it's massively underestimated in terms of its power. In fact, if I can go on, I'm going on a bit long here, Marcus, but I'll say this. We did some research where we stumbled across this question. I now ask this question of as many leaders I can get in front of. The question is this. If the culture of your workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement would there be on people's performance slash productivity? Now, I love asking that question. In our research, we gave people a sliding scale. Started at zero, you might think the culture now, realistically, is as good as it's going to get. So zero is a legitimate answer. Then we gave a sliding scale, 10, 20, up to 100, and then 100% plus. When I ask this question in front of face-to-face of leaders now, Marcus, it is not uncommon for the average to be 40%. That's four zero. Now, I'll turn back and say to leaders, hang on, that's a big number. Are you, you sure? Are you comfortable with this? Yes, they will say. And I will say in response to that, let's presume your guesstimates are wildly over-optimistic. Let's halve it. Let's make it 20%. Would you take it? Like, duh, where else would you get a performance improvement of that magnitude? Through what other initiative? So leaders intuitively know that there is huge performance gains to be made simply by getting the culture to be as good as it realistically can be. I mean, it's people know this. What you're describing here is really building a solid foundation to the business. And this, I think, is something that over the last 40 years has been lost to some degree and forgotten. And uh, again, for those of you who listen to the podcast, it won't surprise you that there's a little bit of a rant coming. The (laughs) the focus on greed, the focus on short-termism, the focus on quarterly reporting, in order to drive a short-term valuation has driven a lot of businesses to forget the fundamentals. 
that you need to build a long-term customer base that will come back time and time again. Otherwise, you're incurring massive hidden cost. The cost of sale, the cost of acquisition of new customers is substantially higher. The profits from um, expansion sales in SaaS are something like 64 times higher than new business acquisition. But because most leadership has come from direct new business sales, the emphasis comes from there. And that is cultural. And that then goes up to the money who recruit those people because those people are fixated on short-term returns. They're like property speculators who buy a property, patch it up a bit, lick a paint, and make a few grand on it, flip it. And that is not how you build sustainable businesses. They're built on long-term planning, a real strategy that has a culture that puts the customer and employees at the heart of everything that you do. And you serve that mission. It's not the other way around. So why is it that we have managed to be seduced by this message of greed for the last 40 years? Because there are plenty of good businesses like Mr. Russo's Kmart that are behaving well, behaving ethically, and undoubtedly are profitable. Marcus, I'm going to get you to do the introduction to any presentation that I do in future now with that spiel that you just gave. That was a great insight, <laughs> quite seriously. I think there's a simple answer to that, Marcus, and I think leaders focus on what is easier to do. And it's easier to go out and try and seek new customers. It's harder to focus on getting the culture right. People mouth the words that culture is, is important to us. But if you don't actually understand what it means, how can you lead it? If you don't lead it, you know, you become a victim of it. And I think it's often the case that people feel victims of their culture, um, knowing that it's not as good as it could be, but not knowing what they can do about it. Right, but you're just describing someone who is criminally negligent and fiduciary negligent as well. If you are not fixing that stuff, I mean, you, you hear shareholders investors and uh, leaders blathering on about serving shareholder value. How dare you claim that you're share serving shareholder value when your baseline for performance in most of your outbound new business activity fails at a rate of north of 95%? And you consider I'm that to be an acceptable baseline? I'm with you 100%. In fact, when I ask people uh, if the culture of our workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement uh, would there be on people's performance slash productivity? On select occasions where I've got a good relationship with leaders and I ask them that question and they come up with, Marcus, I was working with a group in Sydney not that long ago, only a few weeks ago. Their average in response to that question was 80%, 8-0, right? Now, I, I wasn't familiar with that group, so I didn't say this. I have said this to groups of leaders who I've, worked over time with, we've got a good relationship. When people come up with a figure like that, I will say, shame on you. Shame on you for knowing that and not tapping into it. You've intuitively known that there is this huge performance capacity improvement and you've done very little about it. Shame on you. So I'm with you 100%. Right, Steve, I, I'm seeing this across the board and it's bloody lazy management and bloody lazy leadership, quite frankly. 
and it is verging on the criminal. When I hear newly appointed managers reporting back in their coaching sessions to me, when they report back the pressure that they felt um, going through that process and the, the destruct, destructive uh, nature, only to be told by people who should know better, who are in leadership roles, VPs, directors, chiefs, that, oh, just suck it up. It's part of the development process. Why? Why does it have to be part of the development process? Not all pain is gain. And in fact, the reality is, by creating that, all you end up doing is creating the conditions where we've now got 30% of salespeople and managers with some form of stress-related mental health condition, for God's sake. How does that serve shareholders? It doesn't, but that, but you see there is a massive array of UGRs driving leader behaviour, which then influences staff. I'll give you an example. I work with a major automotive company. You would know this brand. It is very well known. And we did some UGRs work with their leaders and their, some of their dealer principals. And a regional director stood up at the end of a half-day session that I'd done with this group of around 40 to 50 people on this day. He stood up and there was a long silence after he stood up. And he said, I've spent a lot of time in this industry and this is the first time we have ever thought about something and talked about something that's not numbers. Everything is volume. Everything we talk about, it's volume. It's targets. It's KPIs. It's numbers, numbers, numbers. And that set of UGRs, the focus on, on numbers, I think has enveloped an industry because I've done a little bit of work with other companies in the same industry and they're, they're almost identical. So it's, it just becomes such a powerful force. This is the way we do things around here. This is what constitutes success. And if people have to, here is a UGR, if people have to suffer in their early days, so be it because we did as well. That can be a UGR as well. But you know? I'm really interested in the UGRs of complicity. So what, what are the ones that make leadership complicit in propagating bad behaviours, bad culture uh, that actually depresses share price, reduces earnings and increases costs? Well, there's two things to this, right? One is that the, most leaders haven't thought about the consequences of the UGRs and their associated behaviours in relation to those important measures. So that's one important thing. But the other dimension of this is to what extent are UGRs forcing us to comply? I put to you, they have enormous power over us. Look, a person who joins a new company, okay, doesn't matter what level of seniority they are. They can be the most senior through to the most junior. It doesn't matter. The vast majority of people who join a new company, when they start, will be quieter than they otherwise would. Now, why is that the case? And there's some exceptions, but why is that a general principle? Well, at an unconscious level, they are tuning in to the UGRs. Why? In order for them to conform. That, it's, it's, it's human instinct. By the way, UGRs are not confined to workplaces. I mean, this is a function of human beings being together. So we'll normally stay quieter when we're confronted with a new group of people. Why? 
to tune into the UGRs. Why? In order for us to conform. Now, as an aside, I think a massive source of workplace stress, and I think this is totally unexplored, a massive source of workplace stress relates to those contexts where people feel compelled to conform to UGRs that go against their personal values. And I honestly think that is massively unexplored and a massive we're, we're source seeing, of workplace stress. We're seeing this now in the UK with the uh, death of the Queen. You know, you've got uh, monarchists and you've got Republicans. And there are these uh, unwritten ground rules uh, in terms of what you can and can't say, can and can't do. And you're seeing it in workplaces. So I uh, came across one environment, which is you know, um, run by someone who's ex-military, very strong royalist. One of his staff doesn't um, believe in all of this stuff. So in fairness, today, he's covering the phones. If you're not willing to live by the principles and pay the price, then tough luck. But you know, was it a form of punishment or was it a way of finding value in our differences? Well, the problem is that I, I think very often when you speak out against the UGR, then you become, it's very easy to become a pariah. And so it, to answer your question earlier, I think in the early days, you're also trying to find out where the minefields are so you know how to navigate them because uh, some of these, you've got to be a bit savvy in these political organizations. So you're looking for factions. Um, and the unwritten ground rules also probably point you towards where factions and power lie um, because the people who drive that dogma, and again, you look on Twitter and the flurry of drivel that comes from both sides of the political divide and the religious divide. And it's just this constant flurry of nobody bloody listening. So how do we create common ground in an environment that has got endemic underlying cultural problems because of factionalism, misdirection, different polit political groups vying, lack of clarity and ambiguity. Let's face it, that, that seems to be pretty commonplace. And a middle management layer that is underserved, undertrained, highly precarious, and severely stressed. And basically, mostly, about, about half in my experience, were once tapped on the shoulder and told, Steve, congrats, you're the boss now. Uh? <laughs> as they spit out their cornflakes, thinking, what the fuck's just happened? How did that, what? Oh, right, okay, yeah, right, round up, guys. And that's it. That's their runway. Yes, well, well, you got. it's more complicated than that, Marcus, because we've now oh, entered the era post-COVID where we are hybrid as well, okay? Yeah. So we have some people working at home, some in the office, some in the work site, never again to all meet as one, okay? So it is, and I'm quite serious, serious here, it is even more complicated than it used to be. Overlay on top of that, the global staffing shortages that are occurring, global, this, this is a global issue, where I, I was speaking to a leader only last week who said, Steve, we really don't want to keep this leader, but we can't afford to get rid of him because we won't be able to find a replacement. So it, it, it gets even more complex than what you're describing in the current now, circumstances. Now, in those sorts of circumstances, that's where I think leadership and culture 
really need to come into their own because there is a fundamental rule that I've learned the hard way many times, too many times, uh, which is you never compromise on recruitment. Mm. Better no breath than bad breath. Yeah. And so the challenge there is why are they not asking better questions, which are if we can't replace them, what do we do in order to make sure that those functions are covered, but we get rid of this toxic individual? And yeah. that worries um, me because they, they hang on and propagate what makes things worse. Yes. So what do we do? <laughs> I've got one underlying principle. And if you disagree with this, Marcus, then the rest of what I'm about to say for probably the duration of our conversation today will be invalid. (laughs) My underlying principle is this. The vast majority of people want to be part of a positive, productive, dynamic, hardworking team. I honestly believe it to be the case. And if you're an employer, people want to move to jobs nowadays where they can grow into the person they want to become. Unless you get that through your thick skulls, you're going to constantly have this revolving door. And it's you. There's the Jimmy Carr rule. Okay, I'm not going to quote it in full. But Jimmy says, if you meet me hmm, by 12 o'clock, you're the hmm. Don't be a hmm. Okay. And it's a see you next Tuesday. Don't be one of them. Okay. The world doesn't need more of them. There is a basic rule in life as a leader, as a manager, as a seller, turn up and be a decent human being. If you do that, it's a great starting point. Don't turn up and try and be some shark that's trying to manipulate, bully, and squeeze some advantage out of another human being. Of course they don't trust you. Sorry, Steve, back to you. I'm really delighted you agree with that principle because we can keep going, that means. Um, so my, my argument is if, if we truly believe that, then there are some fundamental questions that need to be asked and there are some processes that we can go through. There's some leadership principles that I think need to be addressed and I can also talk to processes a bit later. But let me come at the first principle by telling you that I was in the UK pre-COVID working with an organisation that I think every UK listener would know this organisation. And I did some work with their people on day one and had a debrief with the leadership team the following day. And I asked the leaders this question. I said, if I was speaking with your people and you leaders are not in the room and your people are being candid and open and honest with me, how would they answer this question? What are your leaders' top three priorities? Now, there was a long pause in the room until one of the men in the room spoke up and much to his credit said this, Steve, we don't even know what our top three priorities are. So how would they? So my point here is, do we want culture or people or values or some synonym of those words to be a top three priority? You don't go to jail for it not being a top three priority, but it's a genuine question. I was working with a board of a major health region in Western Australia earlier this year. And I asked them this very same question. What would people say are your top three priorities as the board? And the chairman of the board pointed to the strategic plan. He said, Steve, our priorities are here. And I said, no, that's not the question. I'm talking to your people and I'm asking them for their personal views. What are your top three priorities? And that made them stop and pause for a long time because they agreed that culture, if I actually went to their people, 
culture wouldn't be named. So that's the first hurdle. My view is, unless it's a top three priority of the leadership team, the senior leadership team, then guess what? It's not a priority. And you are going to make very little progress on your culture until people realise that this is a genuine top three priority. End of story. I reckon that there are three areas that we have to really focus on. I'm I'm working on this for my own positioning, so I'm going to deviate slightly and use the opportunity to get you to challenge my thinking. I think we need people certainty. We need to be absolutely certain that we know we can depend and trust our people, depend on and trust our people, which means that we need to know that they will be around for a long time. And we need to create the conditions for them to be successful. But we also need to have a contingency plan in the event that they leave, that we've got five, six, seven people lined up who want the job, who can fill in. And we want to be a destination employer. And we've also got to create pipeline certainty, because if we have pipeline certainty, then we've got guaranteed income, we've got investor confidence. And if we're really focused on the medium term pipeline, then we're not focused on that short term peak and trough, peak and trough. We're building long term relationships. We're building intimacy coverage and we're building choice in our pipeline. So five or six opportunities for every deal that we need to come in means that we've got choice. We don't ever have to discount. We don't ever have to compromise on quality. And then the other piece I think that's really important is profit certainty, the ability to really be certain to be able to focus on the fundamentals, make sure that you've got cash flow and valuation health, and then maximize the predictable results. And that way you can be certain of your growth performance. But I think the problem is that no one's really willing to put in the time and the effort to do that deep thinking. See, there are so many UGRs tied in with what you've just shared, Marcus, which I think is is really, really good. And I was taking notes as you spoke. And with regard to the people certainty, one component of that is transparency. To what extent are we transparent with our people? Okay. Now, there are UGRs associated with that. But there is also succession and growth, personal growth, personal development, career development, all that sort of stuff, plus the succession planning, and there are huge again. There are UGRs associated with that. Now, for the pipeline certainty, there are me. You know, I wrote down medium-term KPIs, not short-term. You know, but again, there's some transparency associated with that in terms of. I go back to Guy Russo from Kmart. He'd circulate the business performance around the key areas with everyone in the business. Everyone knew, and by the way, there were bonuses provided to people once. You know. Medium-term KPIs were achieved, no, right across the, the whole of the organisation. And for the profit certainty, again, there's a transparency component to that. And the other thing that I noted, Dan, when you mentioned that market was cost consciousness. And, you know, I, I've explored the UGRs associated with cost consciousness in a lot of businesses I've worked with. And, you know, yeah, um, yeah, there's there's so much UTR stuff that focuses in over that. Now, overarching those three elements, I would no un, sitting underneath those three elements, I would argue is the platform of culture and UGRs. That sits underneath all of those because it's going to impact on all of those and a whole bunch of other things. 
Well, what we've described is a bunch of wicked problems. These are messy, interrelated, interdependent, intertwined problems. And if you tinker with one, you're going to affect the outcomes in others. And part of the problem here that I've seen uh, explode, and uh, again, for any shareholder, just wake up. Okay, for the last seven years, we have seen the proliferation of MarTech, sales tech, sales enablement, every form of outbound, inbound, and you name it. And we have seen quota performance fall from 65% average quota performance within a team to below 40, and it's rapidly approaching 30%. And that's happened over the last seven years as these technologies have exploded. So what is the object lesson here around the short-term fix and the UGRs around short-term thinking? Because these companies have spent a pretty penny. I don't know what the uh, the overall market's worth, but it must be close to a trillion dollars a year. Yeah, well, again, I mean, I don't know if this comes back to the question of, so, so what do we do to improve the culture? How do we get the culture better? I mean, I don't know whether it's time now to talk about in relation to that, some of the processes we can deploy. Yes, please. Because we can get we can get practical here. Yes, um, please. My, we, we get a five-step process for using UGRs as the vehicle to both understand and improve the culture. And the first of the five steps is what we call envision, envision. And behind the envision step sits a question. And the question is, what are the key cultural attributes we need in place for us to truly be successful while also making it a great place to work. Put more simply, the question is, what does our culture need to look and feel like for us to be truly successful while also making it a great place to work? That is your aspirational culture, and the answers to that can be called values. Frankly, I don't care what they're called, but they can be called values. My fear in relation to most values statements is that they haven't been framed by consideration of a question like that. My fear is that most values statements, while well-intended, have been considered by simply asking the question, so what do we want our values to be? It's sort of context-free. Well, my argument is that our aspirational culture is the foundation stone upon which everything sits, so it makes sense to ask that question and derive our aspirational culture through asking a question like that. And then that's got to be circulated widely. let, 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 Let me just build on that, because if you don't get this part right, then all you're going to be doing is digging your hole in the wrong place. There is no point uh, proceeding until you've got this worked out. And it needs to be something that you're going to, these are values that you are going to live every day. They're going to be part of how we do things around here, but also what we elevate and put on a pedestal. The root cause of the word culture is cult, after all. You know, when you think about cults, there are rules and values and taboos and stuff that we hold dear. And um, we have our saints or our heroes. Humanity seems to need this. Um, so make this strong, and but make it good as well. Because again, you've got very strong cultures that are poisonous and they've been very successful. Well, there's, there's that side to it as well. I mean, this is an aside, Marcus, but you prompted a thought in my mind where I was speaking with a leader. This was a leader in Australia. 
And this is a very, very successful organization. I couldn't wait to speak with this leader because I wanted to find out the magic potion behind the culture of this place that was enabling it to be truly successful. He said to me, Steve, it's the worst culture you could ever imagine. I said, what are you talking about? He said, we've got a leader who is very, very knowledgeable, but he's an autocrat. He's, he, he puts us all in straitjackets. No one has, has any freedom. No one's empowered to do anything. What they don't realize is how much better this company could be if the culture was good. That was a breakthrough idea for me. I'd never thought of this. And I think that's a risk with successful companies. Everyone presumes the culture must be great because it's successful. What they haven't asked is how much better could we be if our culture was as good as it could be? You know, so that's a bit of a, a bit of an aside. That's um, really interesting. Sorry. Okay. And so the second uh, part of the process? Well, let me just wrap that one up first by saying our values, which one organization I've worked with recently, they call their values their North Star. I really like that. That's an aspirational culture. It will probably never get there, but it's, it's something we're all fighting for. And my key point here is that across the leadership team and elsewhere, hopefully, there must be clarity and commitment to those values. Clarity and commitment. Unless we've got that, we're going nowhere. And that's the first step. Now, I can say to people, if you've already got value statements which to which there is a fairly strong commitment, that's fine. Keep them. But that's the first step. That's your aspirational culture. The next step is really interesting, Marcus, because we can then find out what the UGRs are in relation to our aspirational culture. So, for example, we have a culture, a value, say, of respect. We can get people anonymously, and this is based on two Australian universities conducting world-first research into UGRs, we can get people anonymously to complete the sentence, around here people are treated. Complete the sentence. If we have a value of constant improvement, we could get people anonymously to complete the sentence, around here when someone comes up with a new idea. If we have a, a value of equality, around here when it comes to people being treated equally. Now, we do this with organisations in what we call a UGRs stock take. We deliberately avoided the use of the term survey because there are UGRs to do with surveys, and it goes like this. Around here, we have a survey every year. Nothing happens, so why bother to treat it seriously? So we call it a stock take, and we have no more than 10 of those lead-in sentences, each crafted to link specifically to the organisation's values, and the stuff we get back, Marcus, is gobsmacking. You would not believe it. We have a free-range text box where people can put one word or multiple paragraphs, but then we do something nifty next to the each text box. We get each person to self-categorise their response as having a positive, neutral, or negative impact on the organisation overall. So if somebody writes, around here, people are treated like school children, they tick the negative box. Around here, people are treated with respect and dignity, they tick the positive box, somewhere in between will be neutral. And we report this back to the leadership team in the first instance, and it is a revelation. Often it's confronting, but it is a revelation because we're finally finding out what the culture is really like around those aspects of the culture which are most important to the organisation's success. It's really fascinating. It's worth having a conversation just for that one question, I think. Thank you. I shall be borrowing that. You'll get credit once at least. <laughs> okay, so you've done the stock take and you get the feedback. How do you manage the expectations of the leadership 
especially when they are perhaps coming up somewhat wanting. This is where 30 years of experience comes to the fore because I've learned that we need to feed this back very carefully to leaders when the results aren't that good, okay? So I try and take an approach which includes a lot of laughs because this can get all too serious. We've got to have laughs. But there is, a, there is a point which I think goes beyond semantics, and I will say this to leaders, that as leaders you are primarily but not solely responsible for the culture. Now, that's not a word game. I actually mean that. Leaders, you are primarily but not solely responsible for the culture. Once you learn about UGRs, you realise that leaders are not the only people who create and sustain UGRs. Staff can do that as well. We can have a good leader with an ordinary culture. Why? Because of the staff. The reverse is the case. We can have a good leader with an ordinary culture. Why? Because of the staff. You know, so staff play the game as well. So sometimes staff can take a cop-out position of sitting down, pointing upwards and saying, if only they'd fix things up, we'd be okay. Well, that might partly be true, but staff have also got to take some responsibility in this as well, and which is, I think, another key principle, and that is shared ownership of the culture is vitally important. Shared ownership. This is not the sole province of leaders. Okay, but that's only possible if you don't have managers or leaders who are, don't take the position of persecutor or rescuer because persecuting management and leadership will cut down any tall poppies, any form of dissent, pushback, and rescuing managers will help without boundaries or permission, i.e. they're a pain in the ass. they micromanage, they interfere, and you just want to tell them to go and boil their head. So if you punish people for the kind of behaviour that you claim in your value system that you want them to exhibit, that's going to go horribly wrong very fast. So there are two things, Marcus. One is I shared to round out the first step of envision. There needs to be clarity and commitment. (laughs) Now, I chose those words carefully, clarity and commitment to those values. This cannot be a talk fest. We've got to look at these values and say, are we prepared to stand behind each of these personally? That's vitally important. Another element to this is accountability, and that is to what extent are we prepared and willing to hold each other to account? What happens when these values are breached in, in, in one or more of our views? So um, this is vitally important. And vitally are we important. willing to be held to account? Because exactly. uh, I've seen often leaders will have one rule for them and one rule for Tava. Okay. That all makes sense to me. Okay, anything else that you want to flesh out on this? The, the second step is doing the stock take. The third step is teaching everyone in the organisation about UGRs and then includes sharing the outcomes from the stock take. So my view is that sometimes, maybe many times, people are subscribing to negative UGRs but doing so unconsciously. So once we teach people about UGRs, it forces them to make a conscious choice. Because there's no off switch once you learn about UGRs. I mean, that's it. It's a, it's, a, it's a curse. There's no off switch. So sometimes merely by teaching people about the concept of UGRs, that can improve the culture. Why? Because people realize, hang on, I've been hanging on to stuff that was maybe true 10 years ago, but is no longer true. And I've got to rethink my own behaviors. We also share the outcomes from the stock take with staff to get them involved in saying, what is it we can do? 
personally and individually to try and make things better. So this is not sole, sole responsibility of leaders. If we can get people reflecting on their personal, their individual behaviours to say what is it we can do better and what are we prepared to commit to. You know, I've seen it happen in organisations where we can create genuine excitement about the prospects for the culture that we're fighting for. Remember, most people want to be part of a positive, productive, dynamic, hardworking team. So give them a bit of license to go there and most people will pick it up and run with it if they believe the leaders are serious about it. Now, this is really interesting because I've been having this debate um, with a few people. Is culture created at a company level or at a team level? Because I fundamentally believe that the manager's role is far more important and desperately underplayed in most organizations because they've got an average of seven to eight reports. They've got day-to-day contact with those people. On average, they're speaking to them 16 to 20 times in the day because they're being interrupted with questions, requests for help, direction, guidance, uh, information, whatever. And the manager's more often than not a bottleneck. I think one of the most underplayed opportunities is galvanizing the middle management layer to become practical operational coaches. These are people who coach on the job, in the moment, at the point of need, based on what they see in the real world. Now, what we don't see is that happen on a widespread basis. What we do see is an awful lot of telling and a lot of supervising and lots of low-value management activity. So again, I think as we're doing this, what, what are the lessons that you've been picking up that people are saying in stage three from the stock take about the middle management layer? Well, it's really interesting you ask that, Marcus, because we've recently created an initiative called Culture Change for Middle Managers. Because I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I think that it's, it's massively overlooked the, notion, the role that middle managers play in regard to culture. But let me come back to your first question, which is, you know, where is culture created? Is it the organisation or is it the team? Well, I've got people to reflect on this question and I say to people, what happens if one of your staff members steals money from the organisation, embezzle money from the company? So it doesn't take people long to say, well, actions kick in, they're gone, right? So my point here is stealing money from the company that pays us is so much of a not negotiable, it doesn't enter enter our heads. The vast, vast majority of us, it does not even enter our heads. So that's an absolute non-negotiable, okay? And then I'll say to people, what about the values? Well, that's very negotiable, right? But my point in sharing this is, can we move our values to be so much of a non-negotiable that it actually locks in? Because my argument is, The values, the North Star, the aspirational culture of the organisation should be absolutely non-negotiable. And we don't care where you work, if it's in sales, if it's in marketing, if it's in auditing, we don't care where you work. These values, this aspirational culture is not negotiable. Having said that, there are different flavours and personalities that are going to make up different work areas within an organisation. So the audit people by the nature of their job and their personality, are probably going to be very different to the salespeople. So while the values should be non-negotiable in those areas, the personalities and the flavour and the feel of those places is likely going to be 
quite different. And that's good. And that's what we want. And that's acceptable. This is really interesting because it ties in very closely with a lot of the work Feldini did um, around human need. So again, if we look at things like certainty, that's tied very closely to clarity recognition, significance. These things are really important. People want to be able to make progress and feel like they're making a connection, making a contribution. We're looking for novelty. We're looking for surprise and interest, and we're looking for different. Whilst we're also looking to build on what's familiar and the same, we're also looking for that advantage. And as a leader, it's our job to ensure that we're feeding those needs because what's really interesting in Cialdini's work is if any two of those human needs are not met, they will override their value system in order or they will compromise their value system in order to get those needs met. So mm. if you don't make those values tied to those inherent intrinsic needs, then chances are when times get tough, you compromise on the values. Now, the values, I yeah. think, should be a guide rail. They, they should be an underpinning, supportive foundation that make you resilient. Part of the way you filter decisions to help you make good decisions so that you don't react. Oh, 100%. And like, if we have a value of genuine focus on customer service, for example, we've had a lead in sentence in a stock take which says something like, around here, when decisions are made, the customer's perspective is, complete the sentence. That's gaining insights into the extent which, to which customers are infiltrating every aspect of our work, you know, which it ought to. So I 100% agree. Interesting. So when I look at the challenges that, you know, you're going to uh, uncover um, by sharing that information and teaching it, that then presumably means that you have to go into some form of execution. So how do you make sure that it's not just a talk shop and it gets put into practice? Well, this is a really good question again, Marcus. And again, this comes back to the question, if I asked your people what are the top three priorities of the leadership team, what would they, what would they say, okay? Because if we want culture to be a top three priority, we've got to talk about it. And my argument is that it's through the – let me tell you the story. I was working with a company – that is based on the eastern seaboard of Australia, but they've also got operations in Western Australia, in Perth. And I was working with their people in Perth, and all the leaders were in Perth with me, and we're all interstate. So we went out to dinner that night. There's around six or eight of us sat around a round table, and I'm sat next to Rebecca, who's the HR director. Rebecca says in social conversation, she says, Oh, guys, I met the new leader who's going to join our team. They're getting a new person to the executive team. I met him this week, just gone. And just from the questions he asked, I know he's going to be fantastic. I looked at Rebecca and I said, Rebecca, you have just nailed something big time right now. We've got to get together as a whole group as soon as we can when we get back to our homes on the Eastern Seaboard. We got back together a week or two later. And here's what I learned from Rebecca. It is through the questions that we ask that demonstrate what's important, okay? And I said to this leadership team, what questions could we ask of our people that would demonstrate that culture is a genuine top three priority? And we came up with a smorgasbord of different possible questions they, they could ask. So one aspect is the questions that we ask. 
And we've got to continue asking these questions. The other thing is, how often is culture talked about? My argument, I was working with a Kmart leadership team, and I said, how often do you meet as a leadership team? Once, once a week, every Monday morning. Do you have standing agenda items? Yes. What are they? Finance and um, safety. So I said, so culture is not important. And Guy Russo pipes in at this stage and says, no, it is important, Steve. I said, no, it's not. Finance and safety is important. Guy turns to the rest of his leaders and says, we're adding a third standing agenda item to our meetings, culture. So culture should be a standing agenda item at meetings where everyone goes to a meeting every two or three weeks. And it's a simple uh, agenda item. We can say to people, what are we doing well? What are the opportunities for improvement? You can pick a one value per meeting and just focus on one value. What are we doing well? What are the opportunities for improvement? So somebody who joins the organisation, within two months of joining, they go to a social function where somebody says, didn't you start a new job recently? They say, you wouldn't believe it. These guys are so focused on their culture, it's unbelievable. It's actually talked about. And they raise issues. They raise concerns in a constructive way. It's absolutely incredible the way they focus on their culture. It's got to be talked about. Fantastic. Okay. So we're rapidly running out of time. So let's finish your five-step process. So the first is envision. The second is assess, which is the stock take. The third is teach. Let's teach everyone in the organisation about UGRs. The third is what we call involve. And again, that's involving as many people as possible, crafting positive UGRs that would demonstrate that the values are alive and well. So if we have a value of respect, for example, we get people to complete the sentence around here and we say it as though it already exists. So if respect was alive and well, what are some possible positive UGRs that would be in existence? So this helps bring meaning to the values. And this is one of the issues with values. We've got to bring clarity and commitment to the values. So by crafting positive UGRs, uh, and we can we can have these sitting, un- we have two or three of these sitting under each of the values, positive UGRs that help bring meaning to each of the values. So you can get staff involved in doing that. Right. It's a fun process. It's a fun process. A tip I give to people is think about something you don't like that's happening right now and flip it around to the positive. I was working with a group a while back and one lady said, I don't like the amount of negative gossip that happens in our place. I said, if you flipped that around, what would it be? She, she said, around here, people are approached directly and constructively when there's a problem. Like, how good's that? So I said, write that one down. So mm-hmm. people can easily think of stuff they don't like. We flip it around to the positive and, you know, prioritise them and, and these can sit underneath the values. Very interesting. But again, it's like when uh, you try and talk about price without context, people then go to the thing that they relate most closely to that to give it a context. And so you could find yourself very badly unstuck. So with this, what you're effectively doing is by having those, when this happens around here, statements, you're giving them a context to frame it in. So then they're not all foul of the other big management mistake which is because of ambiguity, people do what they think they're meant to and then get punished for it because they don't meet the expectations of the manager or the leader who didn't communicate clearly. So this 100%. is really good. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, so 100%. after involved, uh, after uh, involved is, the final, is the fifth and final step, and this is the hardest one. It's called embed, and this is about how do we translate the talk into reality? What is it we can do to actually make this real? And that's stuff like, Put this as a standing agenda item at meetings, never letting it go. 
I was invited by, we, I trained up some culture champions in Kmart and many other organisations, but in this instance, I was contacted by the culture champions or UGR's champions in the IT division, no less, at Kmart in their uh, support office, invited to a lunchtime presentation they were doing. So what they did at Kmart is they had different culture champions from different work areas facilitate a fun lunch hour session. And I was, I was in the audience. I went in and to their support office and I was in the audience where the IT people ran this session. And the IT people, the champions, were easily, easy to identify. Each of them had white T-shirts with a big red heart and the words, I love UGRs, written above and below the, the big red heart. This is IT, Marcus, for goodness sake. And they ran a fun, interesting session and people who wanted to come along came along. Came along. Right. And okay. This, oh, just you know, terrific. What I'm really interested in is what came from those intersectional moments. Because if, if you're bringing people together, what happens, it's just a natural byproduct of having people with common interests, with different perspectives, looking at the same problems. Did you find that that now then becomes a creative hotbed because you end up with more friction, people speaking from different departments, starting to understand each other. What happened, Marcus, was it gained so much momentum that groups, different groups are trying to outdo each other in terms of having fun and new insights at each session. And, and I, I, I've, sp- I've spoken to a number of people who've since left Kmart and have told me, without me prompting, that they've never experienced such a commit, committed focus in such a positive culture as they did across Kmart. We're talking 30,000 people here, 200 stores plus a support office. used to be called a head office, by the way. Words matter. They changed it to support office. They experienced joy over the years from the momentum that was gained and have never experienced it since, by the way, in the organisations they've gone to. So it, it can create momentum of itself and it builds on the principle, it builds on the principle most people want to be part of a positive, productive, dynamic, hardworking team. That's, that's, there's proof positive in that one case study alone. I think that's a really fabulous place to end. So, Steve, how can pe- people get a hold of you? Steve at UGRS.net. There is a website as well, um, which is UGRS.net, and also there's a website for me, which is steve-simpson.com. Okay, so you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Steve, age 23. What one bit of advice would you give him? That's hard because, you know, many of my... I guess the trap in responding to that question is avoiding the mistakes that one makes as a 23 or 24 or 25-year-old, but I think the mistakes that I made were necessary. Better question then. What do you, what's one thing you regret? I'm still tied up with this, and I'm not trying to be difficult here, Marcus. My instant thought was be more confident in yourself. I used to suffer enormously from nerves about how I was perceived. I, I literally had sleepless nights. You know, I speak at conferences. Prior to COVID, I was on planes half my life, you know, just on, uh, speaking at conferences and working with groups. And I used to have so many sleepless nights. So my instant thought was, you know, have more confidence in yourself and all that sort of stuff. But I'm torn by the fact that I think you need to make mistakes to actually learn and grow. So mm. I don't know if I, I don't know if I. That's fair. 
you're a product of all the decisions you've made to date. And the um, mistakes I've made. And the mistakes I've made. The absolutely. big mistakes I've made. Yeah. Final question then, Steve. What would you recommend? One book, podcast, or video audio you'd recommend people pay attention to to get them started on this journey? You see, one of the reasons I asked the question, if the culture of your workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement would there be on people's performance? One of the reasons I asked that is that creates the business case for culture, which I think many leaders rightly are asking for. They haven't been sold on the benefits of culture. So there is a fantastic book and it's dated, but if one is after hard evidence of the impact of culture, there is a book by John Cotter and and another co-author whose name is is, Cotter and Heskett called The Power of Culture. Now it's very dated, but it is very assiduously exploring the extent to which culture matters. And if if you or you know leaders who are desperately searching for a really, really solid business case for culture, that's the book. Fantastic. Steve Simpson, thank you. Pleasure, Marcus. I've enjoyed it. Me too. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, please like, comment, share, subscribe, and tag someone. And if you feel the urge, go and give me a rude review over on Apple Podcast. One star, five stars, anything in between. In the meantime, I am launching the Successful Selling Program, which is a fortnightly program conducted every two weeks for the 24 sessions a year. No technique will be taught. You will learn how to apply decent human principles and values in a sales context, and you'll develop your own technique. So you're not going to be having to do manipulative bullying stuff. If you want to find out more about that, then please email me, marcus at laughs-last.com, or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.